Welcome back to another episode of More Happy Life. This is your host, Andy Proctor. Thanks so much for being here. I'm excited to introduce you today's guest, Dawson Church. Dr. Dawson Church, PhD, is an award-winning science writer with three best-selling books to his credit. The first is called The Genie in Your Genes, uh, which you can find at yourgeniusgene.com. And this was the first book to demonstrate that emotions drive gene expression, which is fascinating. Uh, Mind to Matter is the next book, which you can find at mindtomatter.com, showed that the brain creates much of what we think of as objective reality. The third book, and the one that we talk about today on this episode, is called Bliss Brain. And you can find that at blissbrain.com, which demonstrates the peak that peak mental states rapidly remodel the brain for happiness. Dawson has conducted dozens of clinical trials and founded the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare to promote groundbreaking new treatments. Its largest program, the Veterans Stress Project, has offered free treatment to over 20,000 veterans who've struggled with PTSD over the past decade, which is amazing. That's so beautiful. Uh, so in this uh, interview, well, first of all, Dawson shares also how to apply these health and performance breakthroughs through EFT Universe, which you can find at eftuniverse.com, one of the largest alternative medicine websites on the web. So Dawson has been around the block with regards to um, so uh, much really interesting information. Um, obviously, on this uh, podcast, we like to talk about the things that are backed by science, and we we kind of have a bit of a hybrid on this episode, which is really exciting. Um, I talk about research versus me-search, right? And um, and so we, we go into depth in this episode about what he calls bliss brain or reaching this peak state in the brain, um, which uh, just kind of as a, uh, a, I guess, just a, not a trigger warning, but just for people who, st- who struggle with uh, specific mental illnesses, um, which we, we mentioned this um, in, in the episode too, but, um, you know, to just be, be careful, just like I've talked about in terms of mindfulness and meditations, um, you know, there's a lot of mindfulness and meditation information out there that just basically totes it as the best solution to everything, you know, and kind of like your cure-all <laughs> thing, which there are so many benefits to mindfulness and meditation. Uh, but for certain populations who've struggled with things like PTSD and anxiety and um, even, you know, schizophrenia, psychosis, things like that, uh, you know, just obviously talk to your your doctor, um, your therapist uh, before trying some of these things. Maybe try some of these things with your therapist um, there with you because they might actually be really helpful, but you, you know, it would be a good idea to have some of these people with you. Uh, to help you as you go through it. So, but with that said, uh, there's some really interesting things that we talk about in this episode. Uh, one of them is this fascinating, uh, this molecule that has been kind of more studied recently and discovered in recent research called anandamide. Okay, we've talked a lot about dopamine, uh, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins um, on this podcast and on my website, <laughs> and as the kind of the the uh, you know these molecules or these um, substances in our brain that help us to feel 
positive emotions. Um, the basically the your your dose of happy chemicals is what I often you know describe these as. So dose is D O S E, right? Dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. And so this uh, molecule we talk about a little bit in this episode, anandamide, is uh, what a lot of people are are kind of talking about is this joy or this bliss molecule um, where we experience this sort of ecstasy but naturally without you know any sort of drugs like ecstasy (laughs) Um, so really interesting stuff um, and we talk a little bit about how to tap into and activate this molecule in your brain so if you're interested in this uh, you know definitely listen to this episode. (laughs) Dawson is a very gleeful uh, guest, which I loved spending time with him. His laugh made me laugh and chuckle and smile, and I hope it makes you laugh and chuckle and smile as well. So uh, without further ado, Dr. Dawson Church, PhD. Okay, Dawson, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to have you on the More Happy Life uh, podcast. Thanks for thanks for your time, Andy. I'm thrilled to be here, and anything that helps us get more happy is well worth doing. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> I, I completely agree with you. And you know, um, as you as you said, you know, we we it's really important for this this uh, podcast that we are you know we're always talking about happiness and specifically the science behind happiness. And, um, and I, I actually really love hearing, you know, things, uh, from experts like you around the science and the brain science. And so I can't wait to get into that, but I, first I would love to, you know, have you tell us kind of your brain science, superhero origin story, you know, how did you, how did you find yourself doing this work? Andy, it starts a hundred thousand years ago. (laughs) with an ancestor of mine called Gug, and he survived and passed his genes to the next generation because he had a superpower, and that was he had a gene mutation that allowed him to get super stressed super quickly. And so when the tribes people were wandering through the savannah, when that lion appeared ready to pounce, that gene mutation let Gog notice that pattern of stippling of the light and dark of the lion in the savannah, in the grass, a nanosecond before the rest of the tribe. So he started running a little bit ahead of the others who got eaten. So we have him mm-hmm. to thank. And so he had that gene mutation. He then passed that along to his kids. They passed it along to their kids. Multiply that by a thousand generations. Here you and I are. And so I can, I know Andy have this other superpower. I can sit here in my beautiful office. I have an amazing space. I have a gorgeous home. I have a collection of lovely cars. I have a beautiful view. I can be well-fed and healthy. And I can think about the mistake somebody made at work on my team yesterday. And I can get stressed, 10 out of 10 stressed, just based on the thought. And so what, I found myself in was that pickle that most of us do. And that was that even though I had very little actually wrong with my life, I was stressed almost all the time. And by the time I was a a teenager, I was anxious, I was depressed, I was suicidal. And I realized walking past a full length mirror one day, I was walking past this mirror age of 15 and looked at myself and this thought flashed into my mind. It said, 
that's the saddest face I've ever seen. And I realized with a shock mm. that I was headed for, you know, probably an early death, suicide, misery, certainly nothing like happiness. And so I went and joined an, an ashram, a spiritual community. I began mm. to study psychology. I really tried to fix myself with psychology and spirituality. And that kicked off 15, a 50 year quest to find happiness. And I, I tried a lot of different things. I, at the, at the ashram, we learn meditation, we learn energy healing, we learn the perennial philosophy that analyzes all religions. And I had some powerful experiences. And occasionally I would have a flash of inspiration in meditation, but it wasn't until much later that I made that commitment to serious daily meditation when I was 45, that suddenly things began to change for me. I discovered energy healing and then began changed my career from book publishing to writing and being an author. And so all kinds of things began to happen for me. But the, the pivotal moment was the day I said, I will meditate every morning without fail, no matter how terrible I am at <laughs> this, no matter how God takes over my, my brain and I start thinking about all the bad stuff the moment I close my eyes, even though I'm a terrible meditator, I'm going to keep on doing it. And I did. And eventually I learned a lot of, a lot of scientific methods that help us, us meditate better. And so now when I meditate, I can get to a really calm, elevated space in just a few, few moments. And mm -hmm. now we're hooking people, hooking people up to EEGs and MRIs. We're guiding them through scientifically proven evidence-based steps. And we have them there in five minutes or less. So I'm now teaching these methods as well as researching them. And I just want to help people shed the kind of misery I was stuck in so much of my life and not take them 50 years to figure it out, but get there in five minutes or less. I love that. That's that's such a cool story, and I, I love where you started and um, where where it can. I, I think I think there's so many people who you know are in the midst of their own story, right? Their own origin story, <laughs> and they're trying to figure out you know what's next for me and how do I get there. And so I love always you know hearing kind of how it happened for for amazing people like you you know who are who are kind of really dived into this this kind of this mission this calling right this life of, of that's led by a calling to to really help people and and i love that there's this big change So I am so excited to talk to you about some brain science. Uh, so tell tell the listeners a little bit about your research on on brain on the brain. You know there there are different areas of the brain associated with different emotional states. You know some for when we are stressed and in threat mode, like you're talking about, right? Uh, that that we kind of inherited genetically from thousands of years ago. Uh, and then others for when we are in this kind of state of bliss and serenity. And you talk about the importance of this bliss state in your book, your latest book. So tell us a little bit more about about this this brain science and 
and let's 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 dig into this. Well, we've known for a long time that people can achieve blissful states. Read Rumi or Hafiz, or read Saint Catherine of Siena, Saint Teresa of Avila, and it's it's clear that people have been reaching enormously happy states for a long time, and stories of great sages like Ramakrishna or Ramana Maharshi, and you. You, you read these stories. And when I was there in the ashram at 15 years old and hearing about these great figures, I couldn't relate. I couldn't relate to being that happy. And I thought that that kind of bliss was totally beyond my ability. And it certainly was above the ability of most people I knew, including the leaders of the ashram. So even people who were these supposed to be these uh, examples of shining examples of having it all together spiritually as well as emotionally, they were often really in despair. I had one meditation teacher phone me last month and she was really shaken because her meditation teacher, who she learned meditation from and was one of the kind of pillars of her community had just committed, committed suicide, faced with all the pressures of the, 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 mm -hmm. the things going on around him, the, the pandemic, the financial crash, the election, all the turmoil in the world. He just couldn't do it, take it anymore. So people are, are shaken very often when they yeah. hit these bumps in society. And I, I certainly couldn't relate when I was 15 years old and saw these images of ecstatic saints. And it's like, how on earth do you get there? You close your eyes, you try and get there and you're nowhere near there. And that's the experience of most people in meditation and they stop as a result. So science has come to the rescue by showing us which brain regions are active and which brain regions are active determines how successful your meditation practice will be. There's one brain region especially which sabotages happiness and it's called the default mode network. It has one node in the very big, uh, front of your brain called the mid prefrontal cortex, a second node in the back of your brain called the dorsolateral, I mean the, uh, the precuneus. And these two parts of the brain, one in the back, one in the front, these are the parts of the brain that build, that construct your sense of being you. It, they construct your sense of selfhood. They're what's responsible for what's called self-referential thinking. So the default mode network is the hardware. Self-referential thinking is the app running on the hardware. And it's just what the name suggests. It's I, me, mine, myself, my body, my work, my money, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my height, my weight, all of the stuff about me. And usually when people are obsessed about me, they aren't very happy because they see all of those things about them that are, themselves that are imperfect. And so a giant Harvard study of over 200,000 people found that about 47% of the time we're doing negative thinking, especially if we're doing self-referential thinking. And so the default mode network is processing all this negative thinking all the time. And what really sucks about the design of the brain in that sense is that it's the default mode network. Anytime we aren't doing stuff, if we, are, if we aren't working, if we aren't, um, if we aren't doing a sport, if we aren't engaged in conversation with a friend, if we're idle, our brain idling goes to self-referential thinking and the default mode network, and we become unhappy. So our default state is actually not happiness. Our default brain's default mode is being miserable. So that's why it's hard to meditate because you close your eyes, 
you cut off all the information going to your occipital cortex and your brain is full of the bad stuff from the past and it's rehearsing how that might come and bite you in the future. And so you have to learn this and you have to learn the, 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 the techniques that experts like Tibetan monks who've spent 10,000 hours in meditation in their lives or Franciscan nuns who've spent 25 years contemplating Mother Mary and the divine. These people get seriously happy. And when you put them in an MRI scanner, we find the default mode network is quiet even though their eyes are closed. They've learned to attach their attention to something higher than themselves. And in my books, I call that non-local mind. And there are lots of names for it, the infinite, the universe, some people call it God, but I call it by the scientific and neutral term, non-local mind, because your mm. self-referential thinking is all about local reality. It's about stuff in the here and now in the material world. When you tune into non-local mind, you are no longer thinking about local reality. You are obsessed with, tuned into, connected with non-local reality and the enormous information fields out there that are full of love and kindness and information and wisdom. And then you are absorbed in those fields. In fact, not only does the, the default mode network shut down in these meditation adepts, the proprioceptive part of the brain shuts down the parietal lobe that locates your body in space. The parts of your, your brain that process time go offline. So suddenly there you are, you're not a self, you're not a body, you're out of time, you're out of space, you're drifting there in non-local reality. And then the neurotransmitters and hormones of advanced meditation come into play. And those are things like serotonin, your main feel-good hormone, dopamine, your main motivational hormone, your main motivational neurotransmitter, oxytocin, your bonding hormone. And so you have floods of the bonding hormone oxytocin, which is released by love and sex and touch and affection and social contact. And so now these adepts are there, they're drifting in time and space with floods of oxytocin, the love hormone coursing through their bodies, coursing through their brains. They're in love, but with the infinite. And that then, triggers the synthesis of the most pleasurable of all the neurotransmitters, which is anandamide, the bliss molecule. And now you're completely stoned. <laughs> Your <laughs> brain is just awash in dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, beta endorphin, oxytocin, anandamide, and you feel absolutely wonderful. And so I couldn't figure that out. I couldn't relate to those pictures of these saints I saw when I was 15. But over the years of doing brain scans, getting into the research, scanning, looking at the brain scans of thousands of people, we've now reverse engineered those states. We can guide people slowly but surely into experiencing that same state of a meditation master. And it takes just a few days to learn it. So that's really my the focus of my current work. That's amazing. I just, it's fascinating to, to consider these things. And, you know, I've, I've experimented with lots of different types of meditation, loving kindness, meditation, self-compassion, um, you know, just kind of your basic headspace and calm app kind of meditations and insight timer is kind of all over the place. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, I've had really, uh, for the most part, really positive experiences. I've talked about this on this podcast too, of having had some kind of freaky 
uh, negative experiences with meditation. And it's, I, I like that you talk about the fact that it's not always comfortable. Right. And it, and oh. it's, you know, we get, as soon as you go into that kind of default mode network, you know, um, when you begin meditating, it's like, wait, why, why am I sitting here looking at all these negative things in my head? <laughs> I don't want to stay here. And I think, um, for somebody who's just starting, right. It can be really uncomfortable. Um, and, and I also just want to say too, for some, for some populations, um, some of the studies have shown that, that it's actually, I can't remember what it is, like maybe 20% of people um, who actually can have an extremely, extremely uh, traumatic experience um, meditating as well. Um, but I love that you're talking about the, um, you know, this, this, like, I really want to talk more about this, this concept of getting to this point of this kind of um, anandamide, um, this kind of bliss hormone. Cause you know, we talk a lot about, you know, the, the kind of happiness chemicals, like, you know, the, the, I call them the dose chemicals, right. Dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins. And, um, you know, but I, I like, tell me a little bit more about this, uh, anandamide and, um, you know, what, what is that? A, is that a kind of a brew of those different, uh, you know, neurotransmitters or is it its own thing? Anandamide is a molecule discovered very recently, so there's less research on it than there is into serotonin and dopamine, and serotonin was discovered in the 1950s, and so yeah. these are much older uh, molecules in terms of having a research history, and anandamide was just a really brilliant uh, hypothesis by this professor called McCullum at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and yeah. what he said was, and he was in, in, with graduate students and colleagues, he said, we know that when people smoke marijuana, they get a whole bunch of different molecules coming in, uh, CBT and so on. But the THC is the psychoactive component in marijuana. It yeah. makes you high. And he said that we know that THC docks with certain receptors in your brain and they're called cannabinoid receptors. And so here we have this mm. molecule and it's not even from, from a, a mammal, not even from, from a human being, it's from a plant. And so this this THC molecule is docking with those cannabinoid receptors and they're in your brain, the different parts of your body, and they're highly concentrated in certain parts of your brain. And they're making people feel like these ecstatic experiences. And his big, brilliant insight was if there is a docking station for THC in your brain, your brain certainly didn't evolve to uh, respond to marijuana or THC. It it evolved to, to respond to a molecule in your body that's slushing around in there somewhere we haven't discovered yet that fits into that same receptor site. And so mm -hmm. he gave two of his graduate students the job of finding the molecule. And they say it was like a needle in a haystack looking through tens of thousands of molecules trying to figure out what docked with cannabinoid receptors in the brain. And eventually by sifting through the haystack, they found that molecule and they called it anandamide. And anand is the Sanskrit word for bliss. So this is mm. the bliss molecule and, and it, it docks with those THC receptors and it makes you feel high. It doesn't have a long-term effect. So yeah. THC, if you smoke THC, you'll feel high for a while. If you meditate, you'll feel high as anandamide was released for a little while. When you stop meditating, your anandamide levels can drop pretty quickly. And that's where some of the other uh, neurochemicals come in. But yeah, that is really, anandamide is the star of the middle part of my book, Bliss Brain. And I talk about the seven neurochemicals of bliss and also how you get them 
in the ratios that are safe and appropriate for you. If you mm. go smoke marijuana, you can easily get an overdose. Like I tried it. I've, I've tried it a few times in my life and yeah. I've had really incredibly unpleasant experiences with it. And I <laughs> yeah. now realize that it's because I was getting way too much THC in my system. And, mm. uh, and then I tried, um, I tried microdosing on psilocybin a couple of times. And I'd say yeah. psilocybin is about maybe for me, at least 30% uh, as good as the brain's natural psilocybin because psilocybin mm. docks with serotonin receptors. And so you feel good with mm. a lot of serotonin in your brain because it's a natural thing. You can't overdose dose on it. And so it's docking with those, those psilocybin receptors. People think they want magic mushrooms. What they really want is serotonin. serotonin. They don't really actually want, you, know, you don't actually want alcohol or cocaine or heroin. You want dopamine. You want dopamine. to excite the dopaminergic reward system in the base of your brain. And what people just don't realize is you can get all of those chemicals. So with a small group of mystic meditators, we've been comparing notes for the last few years. And one of the things we do in our meditations is we have a process at the end of each meditation, very similar to detox of transitioning people to the real world. Because when people get done with a meditation that generates all of these neurochemicals, Andy, they are so stoned. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of right. it, they cannot relate to everyday life. When I wake, when I finish my meditation in the morning, I am so, for one thing, I'm very reluctant to come back to everyday life. And I can see why yeah. people who used to do this in the olden days would go and live in a her hermitage or a cloister because yep. they didn't want to go then and deal with washing the car and changing the diaper and earning money. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but you, exactly. you feel seriously good. And so that's why, that's also why people email, we have a lot of customer service emails every every week and um, people email us and say, I did the meditation once and now I'm doing it every single day. So I just I had two people email me and say, oh, we're going to do this together and we're going to act as each other's accountability partners. And I emailed back and said, believe me, once you've hit once you've had that hit of these highly addictive neurochemicals, you won't need an accountability partner. You will be hooked mm. and you will want to do the meditation every day because you're getting all these good neurochemicals in your brain in safe and appropriate doses and in the, in the right ratios. Uh, some people need a lot more dopamine. Some people a small knot is fine. Some people need, need more serotonin. So your brain is generating the cocktail that's perfect for you may not be the right, right one for the, for the next person. And it's certainly not one that's coming in from an outside source, like smoking it or taking it as a pill. So uh, it's just amazing what this kind of meditation does. And then the, the, the addictive effects of it. And that's what gets people into the groove and then motivates them to meditate regularly. That's really fascinating. You know, um, I, I, I think it's really important, you know, to know those skills too. Um, because yeah, I think, I think when I had that freaky, crazy one, um, I, I wouldn't say I was stoned, uh, <laughs> but I would say I definitely was experiencing a state of what I would call dissociation. Um, and when you talk about this, like non-local mind, right? Like I was, I was like, I felt like I was, I mean, it was, I was totally relaxed, but it was as if I was like 
not inside my body, which sounds really crazy. Um, but in my brain, that's what it felt like. Right. And so, um, but I didn't really have any, but I didn't have like a guide to say like, okay, here's how you come back down or here's how you, you know, get grounded again or whatever. And, um, and so anyways, that happened to me. And, you know, so it's having those tools to, to know how to come back to your body. How do, how do you, how do you get back grounded again? You know, I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind maybe talking a little bit to that as well. Did I lose you? Pretty oh, simple. there we go. Okay. Um, yes. So I put the string of science-based techniques together in a little formula in 2008 and I called it eco-meditation. And I did it with groups of people, they had a good time. I didn't really think much about it for many, many years until around 2016, um, my webmaster said to me, you know, Dawson, you've got this little, little page up there, one page, primitive page with an audio, MP3 audio on it, ecomeditation.com. Do you know we're getting 10,000 organic visitors a month going to that page? And I'm like, whoa, I, I just forgotten about it for, for a few years. So we then began to, well, first of all, we spruced up the page. So if you go to ecomeditation.com now, you'll see a nice page, <laughs> not, not the crummy old page you used to have there, but also we began to study it. And that meant initially doing um, uh, outcome studies. And that's just a study where you ask people a bunch of questions about how they feel, anxiety, depression, pain, happiness, and so on before. And then another set of questions after they finished the process. In this case, uh, uh, a one-day eco-meditation workshop. And we found that they got happier, a lot happier after the workshop. And when we followed them up six months or a year later, they got even happier. They were just getting happier and happier and happier. And again, many of them were meditating now as a daily practice. So we did those outcome studies. We then began to do the um, empirical research using MRIs and EEGs. And we've done a few of these studies now, and they show in four weeks, they show that people's brain anatomy starts to change. Now that's worth taking a deep breath and thinking about because changing your physiology, changing your state, that's very desirable. Having a, a state of happiness is much better than being in a state of unhappiness. But if you can change your anatomy, that means you now have the trait of happiness. You are a fundamentally happy person. And so that is what we find starts to happen in time. And it only we, we found in one MRI study, marked changes in the brain in only four weeks of eco-meditation. The default mode network just shuts down. The compassion network lights up like a Christmas tree. And so big, big shifts in doing this for just about 20 minutes a day for four weeks. But then you have to bring people back to the real world at the end. So it's very yeah. simple to do. You open your eyes. So about 11 million bits of data travel every second through your optic nerve from the rods and cones in your eyes into your occipital cortex in the back of your brain, which sorts all this, this information out and makes sense of the outside world. And so when you close your eyes, you cut off that flow. That's where if you are not prepared, you can start to have traumatic experiences or negative experiences or the dark night experience. And so when you open your eyes after meditation, you then have this flood of information passing into your brain again, and that orients you to the outside world. So opening your eyes is number one. 
but then engaging the attention network in the outside world. So you want to shift the focus of the attention network, which is a very, it's a very particular set of brain regions. So there, there is the attention network, there's the compassion network, default mode network, the enlightenment network. There are all these different networks that people, that neuroscientists have traced in the brains. And I, mm -hmm. I help you sort through them in Bliss Brain and, and figure out how to light up. And you want to have the attention network active in meditation, but active on the object of meditation. Your, you know, your, your, your elevated state, your good emotions, your um, maybe if you if you have, have religious beliefs, uh, bringing those those beings in. That's where your attention is directed. But when you finish meditation and open your eyes, you then deliberately direct your attention and engage the attention network in stuff in the outside world. You notice the weather. You look out the window. You look at your watch. You check your calendar. You do all of those things, and. I, I really encourage people not to do anything like checking your calendar or your watch or the outside world before meditation. Wake up in the morning and mm. immediately meditate. But when you come out of meditation, then orient yourself and um, fill the attention network of your brain with the content of the outside world. And what happens then is you become extraordinarily productive and perceptive. And so research into people finishing that flow state of meditation and then moving to the outside world finds their productivity levels, the levels of the stuff they accomplish during the day. They're now moving into the workday, they're eating with their kids, they're talking to their spouses. Their productivity goes up five times, 500% increase in productivity. And in one uh, really interesting study by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, their ability to solve complicated problems goes up by 490%, almost a five-fold increase in the ability to solve all of the issues you find in your world. So now you haven't just, you know, we, I've had people say, well, I don't have time for meditation. And I say, hey, you don't have time to not meditate. You're, yeah. you're going to trade in a five-fold increase in productivity to save the 15 minutes it would take you to meditate. That's an ex that, that is the worst trade-off. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so it's engagement in the outside world and then bringing the framing of that to the outside world. And so you see the, the outside world, your, your, your world of work and family and body and exercise and, and health and livelihood completely differently after you spent that time in meditation. That's beautiful. I think it's amazing. And I, I've, I've definitely also experienced that. It's a, it really is um, quite remarkable to just, you know, start. I, I like to start my day with it because then I feel clear. I feel like I'm, yep. I'm ready to go, you know, yeah. and, and it's not, it feels like I, I've already had a successful day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you don't, you don't have to like do, I mean, not that you won't do more things, but it's like when you start the day off thinking like, if nothing else happened today, it will have been an amazing day. You know what I mean? So um, I just, I love that. So that's, that's, it's powerful. 500% increase in productivity. That's just amazing. Um, and I think it's amazing too, because I mean, um, so, you know, speaking of positive psychology, Martin Seligman talks about how, you know, it's, it's, I think it's around 50% of our, our, um, you know, ability to feel or experience positive emotions comes from like our genetics, right. And, um, the genetic inheritance that we have, uh, and, um, 
and and I love that your research shows that you can you can actually rewire your brain um, for you know the, the kind of a happier default. And um, I mean, some I, I feel like some people that I know are just they're just like wired to be happier. They're wired for glee, right? They're just they're just always kind of they they drop to their default of like you know, being grateful and, and really looking at the good side and, and just, I don't know, they're just like resilient. Uh, but then there's other people who just really, they just really struggle, you know, and they, and they, I think they go to that, that very, um, you know, self, uh, referential place, right. Um, a lot as well. And so, so I just love that, you know, it talks about rewiring your brain, um, and, and to, to, to build that happier default. So I'm just excited to, to have the listeners, you know, really, um, read more about this, which, uh, you know, this is, this is in the, the, your newest book, which is called bliss brain. Is that that, correct? Right? Yes. Uh, my previous book, mind to matter, mind to matter is all about the science, the empirical science, the, what research shows us about the relationship of what you think to what you create, thoughts to things, that's mind to matter. And then I began to notice after I wrote mind to matter and was practicing these really advanced Tibetan meditations that I was getting, I mean, I was really super happy and I was hitting these extraordinary states. I began to wonder why I was feeling so good. It was almost like I was on this drug induced high every day. And then mm. I discovered out, discovered I was. So I wanted to write about <laughs> anandamide initially in this brain but it wound up being a much broader book about the brain regions, about the brain waves, and then about these, these, these hormones and neurotransmitters, and then about how you can induce them. And so there's a section after each chapter of this brain that says deepening practices, and a second section that, that sa- section that says extended play resources. So these are videos mm. about different parts of brain function or links to websites that uh, will help you explore more. And then the deepening practices are meditations. And I actually recorded these one for each chapter. And so both in Mind to Matter and Bliss Brain, there's a meditation for each chapter and they then guide you into experiencing that state right then and there. And, and these are just extraordinarily powerful. I put them up on Inside Timer. I, I just kind of forgot about them there as well in 2017. <laughs> and then I went the other day and they've had, I don't know, 60, 80,000 plays um, people just found them and began to use them there as well. But we also make them available through through the, the, the book's website. So um, yeah, you can practice these meditations and you literally feel like when you feel, when you evoke dopamine, you can literally feel that rush of reward coming mm-hmm. online in your brain. You then evoke oxytocin and you feel unconditional love for somebody and you feel yourself flooded with the hormone of unconditional love. You then evoke norepinephrine and an alertness neurochemical. You then work with serotonin and dramatically increase the amount of serotonin in your brain. And then you start, often start to hallucinate. So a lot of people who are at that serotonin phase say, wow, I'm I'm here in serotonin, I'm, I'm doing the meditation, I, I'm seeing these beautiful colors, I'm seeing flowers, strawberry fields. <laughs> <laughs> it really, these are really good drugs, Dad. <laughs> but, 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 but we create them, right? I mean, they're inside of our head already, right? Like that's the thing that's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's natural, right? And then 
um yeah i think that that's why i'm so fascinated with this this um this the bliss molecule right the nanomite so um yeah i mean i mean it seems like um you know, so, so I interviewed a, a, a fascinating author, um, Craig Case. He, he wrote a book called Big Ideas, and he talked about these brainwave states, right? The alpha, the beta, um, the gamma, and um, talking about where, you know, which one of those states leads to these massive breakthroughs, these big ideas, right? These kind of aha moments. And then, you know, I've also talked to other people about uh, psychedelics and how those oftentimes, even though there are the kind of hallucinations and things that come with that, you know, those also lead to these kind of big aha moments, right? Um, of, of, of extreme clarity about our mission in life or something. But then what I've always believed, um, and I love that your your research is really confirming this, is that you know you don't necessarily need these um, substances to get you there. I mean, you can you can right, you can use them, and there's a lot of research that's really interesting that's going on about that right now. But 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 meditation and 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 you know somehow coming into this. Uh, uh, you know, through practice, I guess, um, coming into this, into this anandamide um, in, in our brain, um, you know, can, can really help us to get to these, this state of clarity and of insight, it seems like, um, uh, you know, without necessarily using these substances for people who are maybe, you know, af afraid of or concerned about that, whether that's for religious reasons or whatever, you know, but you can, you can just, you can meditate and get, get to that point as well. I mean, that's basically what you're saying. Yeah. And I'd be concerned, not for religious reasons, primarily, I'd be concerned because of side effects. If you look at the, there are several meta-analyses of, um, marijuana, uh, ecstasy, uh, other psychoactive drugs, and yeah. among their long-term effects, like there's just for example, uh, one study showed that people who take marijuana for pain have a higher level of pain <clears throat> after a few years of marijuana use than people who don't take marijuana for pain. Mm. Uh, another study find that people who take marijuana for depression wind up more depressed over time. Uh, Meta-analyses of people using ecstasy show that it dramatically accelerates cognitive decline. You really don't want that. That's Alzheimer's, that's dementia. Right. Uh, you don't want cognitive decline. And not only does ecstasy uh, produce cognitive decline, as does marijuana. I mean, marijuana, two, one study of teenage boys showed that smoking two joints, only two joints of marijuana, produced measurable degradation in the memory learning centers of their brains, only two joints. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the costs are sky high of drug use and it yeah. comes with a, with a penalty. You may feel good now, but when you're uh, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, you, you're unlikely to be feeling nearly as good. And so um, side effects are, are the main reason why I recommend these natural highs. And people, people only just, people don't go for those substances. They just, it's just ignorance. You just don't realize, I mean, that cocaine addict has no idea that he or she actually can make that craving 
neurochemical in their brains by themselves. We just don't know that. We aren't trained to know this. In fact, most neuroscientists don't realize this. So uh, that's why people are using these kinds of substances. Wow, fascinating. Yeah. And and I think it's so important, right, to, to be able to know how to access these on our own. I mean, why not, you know, um, just just be able to to get to it inside of our own heads. So I think that's that's really, really useful and definitely worth looking into your book to learn more about how to do this. So, um, you know, how so for somebody, I mean, you've, you've, you've thrown out a couple of, of, of figures out there, but you know, uh, like 15 minutes of meditation type of thing. Um, how long does it take for somebody to really find that state of, of kind of serenity or bliss brain? Um, if they do this, you know, the work that you suggest, I mean, is, is it 15 minutes per day for, um, a, a week? Is it a couple of weeks? I mean, what, what have you found? There's a beautiful quote from a woman called Tony Tomlinson, and uh, Tony is one of the many people who's given us permission to use her real name. And uh, we do that for people who write into us who say, well, can we share your story and use your real name? And often they say yes. And she wrote, I've tried a lot of kinds of meditation before because I am so burned out with life and parenting. I have high cortisol, 99% of the time I'm in stress thinking. And so when I sat down to do eco meditation, my self-talk was, Dawson, this is not gonna work for me. I've tried everything and I'll fail at this as much as I failed at every other kind of meditation I've tried. And then she wrote, I began to do the seven simple steps you have on the website. And Dawson, when I hit step number three, I was in ecstasy. Tears of bliss began to flow down my cheeks and I was at that place I wanted to be at my whole life. I'm gonna do this every day. <laughs> so that's Tony, so that's, that, that's, that's one time. And often the very first time people do these seven simple steps, they feel the ecstasy. In terms of brain states, you get there the first time and after two or three times you're getting there more easily. But we did a randomized controlled trial of people using MRIs, divided them into two groups. One did mindful breathing, the other did the seven steps. And we found that the mindful breathing group, they felt better, but after a month, there was no change in their brains. The group that did eco-meditation had a dramatic down-regulation of the default mode network. So now the structure and function of their brain anatomy is changing, and then their compassion network was highly active. So down-regulation of default mode network, up-regulation of the compassion network, part of the enlightenment network I talk about in this brain. And that only took 22 minutes a day for 28 days. So you start to feel good from the first meditation and you start to remodel your brain within the first month of doing this. In Bliss Brain, I also have case histories of people who've been doing it for a long, long time. And there are studies of monks, for example, who have over 50,000 lifetime hours of meditation. And what happens to the brains of those monks is that the stress structures like the amygdala, like the nucleus accumbens, that's the main craving structure. These parts of the brain just start to shrivel. They start to atrophy because they aren't being used. So the stress parts of your brain, the fight or flight parts of your brain start to literally shrink and disappear. 
as you as you develop these these abilities to be that happy. If you need if you need if you need that stress part of your brain to escape a swerving bus, well, you'll be able to do that. But otherwise, they aren't turned on all the time like they are for most people. So the the answer is like for Tony Tomlinson, you get there the first time. You're then encouraged to do it regularly every morning, and then you start to see these functional changes in the brain. And that's why the subtitle of this brain is the remodeling for creativity, resilience, and joy, because it produces resilience. You become, you become a resilient human being. You aren't just having thoughts about resilience. You are literally hardwiring your brain for resilience. And that means when you face the next catastrophe, when you get divorced, when you lose your job, when you lose your money, when your retirement fund goes down. I tell some of my own stories there about losing my house in a wildfire in chapter one and how we just, it was devastating just to suddenly wake up in the middle of the night, see flames oh. sweeping down down toward your house, scream wow. at your wife to get out of there, grab your car key, sprint for your car and drive out through the flames. Not a very, uh, I mean, this is, this is, you know, this is a this is about as traumatic an experience as, as you get. And I tell that story in chapter one. In fact, the publisher said, Dawson, this is a beautiful book about resilience, but tell your story at least in one chapter. So I make that chapter one of the, of, of the book. And I mean, it was a devastating. 5,000 houses were destroyed that night. Oh, yeah. Two people died. Eight of our neighbors died because the fire was moving at the speed of a football field every three seconds. People couldn't get out of their, their houses. The roads were clogged, branches fell, and we were one of the last cars out of that that neighborhood. We we, we, just, we just barely escaped. So what happens when you're when you lose everything? You know, we lost our house, we lost our office, we lost absolutely everything we had except for our car and our cell phone that that night. And it all happened in just in a few few moments. What happens when you have that kind of a loss? If you are looking to your external reality to validate you and give you your sense of self worth. Well, you aren't going to have much after you lose all the material possessions, but we we recovered. Now we, we, it wasn't you know like a miraculous recovery. We needed therapy. We had to do all of our own techniques. We meditated every day, and it took us about three days to really get back into our bodies out of that dissociative state. But we yeah. did get back into our bodies. I began to work again. We began to pull our lives together again, find a new place to live, and you know gradually piece all the the things we we, we put together. Over um, over the next couple of years, so you, you, when you are when you are a resilient person, you aren't just in a temporary state of happiness. You literally have built this neural wiring over a period of years, and you have a resilient brain. So when the fire hits, when the recession hits, when the financial catastrophe hits, when the operation, when the divorce, when the health crisis hits. You have this neural wiring in this hardware in your brain that makes you resilient. That's why the practice of this over time is so powerful. So that's the, the you know, I tell stories in the book as well. My story, other people's stories, a lot of research there, but it's really grounded as well as in the science, in the accounts, the cases of people who've done this and then found that they're dramatically happier. They're dramatically more creative than they were before. Creativity more than doubles when you're in this state. And one Harvard research uh, study found that you get in that state, it do that for about an hour. And then for the next 48 hours, your creativity and your resilience is higher. So the effects last a long time. And you then have the resilient brain to take you through the next crisis. 
That's really powerful. And it's, it's exactly what I love to, you know, really help to reveal on this podcast is these upward spirals, right. Of health and happiness. <laughs> yeah. Cause you do one thing, right. Which then that, that positive ripple leads to another positive ripple, which then it reinforces the original positive impact that you had, which then creates even more, you know, so it's, it's this upward spiral, right. And, and the more you, you do these types of exercises, um, it just, it completely, it changes you. And like Barbara Friedrichsen's research talks about this, this very thing, you know, one, uh, you know, one loving kindness meditation uh, could, the effects of it, you know, a really, really good uh, meditation session can last, last up to 90 days in your body, right? I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. And um, so I, I'm so glad you've been talking about this. I'm glad, um, you know, for people who are, who are listening, who are just, you know, thinking, should I get into this? Should I, should I try meditation? Um, you know, where, where would you say they start Dawson? Where should they, should they, uh, you know, do you have, do you have some resources that you'd share with them? Yeah, so go to blissbrain.com, get a copy of the book, blissbrain.com, because you also get the eight meditations there and a bunch of other goodies. Uh, that's the, the real, the place to start. And then just do the first meditation and feel how it feels in your body. Your body mm -hmm. will tell you right away that there's something going on here. So do, the, do it like Tony Tomlinson, do the meditation one time. And that's enough to kick it off. Now, one thing about your dissociative experience, Andy, and one of the caveats here is I my previous research career before working on peak states and flow yeah. was working on trauma and uh, mm. I founded the veteran stress project work with with veterans in 2007 and over the last more than a decade we worked with over 20,000 veterans with PTSD and we've also done six randomized controlled trials many of mm. which have involved veterans and we find that uh, for people who are traumatized, you, you, you need that additional step of working through trauma. So mm -hmm. we recommend that you, you certainly aim for these elevated states, but that simultaneously you do something to heal trauma. We have a, a large group of practitioners. We have a website called um, tappingplace.com because they use EFT tapping. And the tapping is the fastest way to dissipate trauma. And so we mm -hmm. encourage people to tap on tappingplace.com, work with a practitioner, uh, download some of the other resources on blissbrain.com, and then use the, the trauma release methods in addition to the meditation methods. So you want to do both simultaneously. Use the trauma release methods to bring yourself out of any of those dark night experiences that you might otherwise have. Otherwise, going for the peak states actually can trigger the dark night. So you want to make sure that you're doing the trauma release work as, as well as doing the, uh, the peak states work. And if you do those two things together, you move very quickly through the trauma and then you're left with the joy. That is so helpful. I really appreciate that because, you know, there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who have asked about anxiety and trauma and things like that. So I know that a lot of the listeners will really appreciate that, um, that information too. And such important work that you've, that you've done even before this book, which is, which is great. So thank you for that. Um, and, you know, 
I, this is a question I asked to all my guests um, on the show, which is, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot of things, um, but uh, you know, what other advice do you have for uh, someone who is listening right now, who's just desperately wants a more happy life? The voices in our heads are often so full of blame and criticism and not only are our brains geared to looking for the tiger in the grass, when we don't have a tiger in the grass, when there isn't really anything out there to criticize or worry about, we turn those voices inward to self-criticism. And Annie, one of the things that really hurts my heart is I do a lot of workshops every year and I do live workshops, I do virtual workshops with people and I'll work with somebody who's maybe 25 years old and they look so good and they have such a good life and yet in their own mind, they are just tearing themselves apart or even worse, they're trying to use self-criticism to motivate themselves. And that is just totally counterproductive. And, and so um, hmm. the, the paradox of growth is that growth begins when you accept yourself unconditionally, just the way you are. I, I worked with an, a famous actress in Hollywood a few years back and I was so struck when I, be, I was doing EFT tapping with her. And I, uh, I mean, this woman is six feet tall and she's absolutely friggin' gorgeous and has this beautiful home and lives in Hollywood <laughs> Hills. And uh, she was like an idol. I was like starstruck when I met her. It's like I'd seen her in movies. And, um, and then she started talking about her childhood and, and how her sister hit her over the head with a baseball bat, knocked out two of her teeth, and her mother, who was an alcoholic, and her father was, who was abusive, and just horrendous uh, her childhood. And I said, now now say, because in EFT tapping, we say, even though this happened, my sister knocked my teeth up with a baseball bat, I, I accept myself. And this beautiful actress just burst out crying. She said, I don't accept myself. I don't accept anything about myself. I don't accept the way I look, how much I weigh, blah, blah, blah. She just had this torrent of self-criticism. And so you see this person who's so beautiful and looks so good on the outside and yet in their head, they are, you know, she is now the sister with a baseball bat knocking out her teeth every day. And, um, she's internalized those oppressors. And so self-love is the crucial thing. And you've got to go and release that trauma and then be able to say, I love and accept myself. I'm okay the way I am. I'm a good human being. I'm doing my best and let go of that self-criticism. So self-love is the root of growth and accepting yourself just the way you are. It's a paradox, but that is hmm. the beginning of real transformation. That is so beautiful. And thank you so much for that. And it's, it's great. I'm going to share this uh, with one of our past guests who just talked about the science of self-love. So perfect. Uh, thank you so much, Dawson, for, for being on the show. This has been fascinating, enlightening, inspiring, and just really helpful uh, practically as well. So where can, I mean, you talked about blissbrain.com. Where else can people find you, follow your work, support you? Blissbrain.com is the best way. And then another good resource is, uh, I mentioned tappingplace.com where you can work with one of my hundreds of certified practitioners who are certified in clinical EFT, which is um, accredited by the AMA for the American Medical Association for 
continuing medical education. So it's an evidence-based method. That's a great, great resource to go for a session with a practitioner, tappingplace.com. And then there's one other website, which is relevant right now. We've done a, a bunch of research into immunity and especially the molecules that zap viruses and bacteria invading your body. Mm -hmm. And we found that when cortisol goes down, which it does uh, with these methods, that levels of immune antibodies go up. And so I made a special immunity meditation, which incorporates this research. And that's at dawsongift.com. And that's really highly worth using in a situation like today, where high immunity is really worth having. We found that in one study, mm -hmm. people doing this for a weekend, for two days, they raised their level of immune antibodies by 27%. So only 48 hours worth of doing this kind of work, and suddenly you have a quarter more immunity than before. So uh, that website, Dawson Gift, is where we had that special immune meditation that I made when the pandemic began, and mm -hmm. it's now been translated and it's gone all over the world. So it's really helped uh, hundreds of thousands of people. And we really are key on seeing people use the meditation and uh, raise their level of immunity by doing that. That's really beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, this is going to really help so, so many of the listeners. So thank you so much, Dr. Dawson Church. Thanks for being on the show. All the best, Andy. Thanks for having me.